0: Hi, are you a gifted or twice exceptional adult who feels a bit stuck in your journey? Do you have goals and dreams which you would love to achieve, but you don't know where to start or feel a little bit overwhelmed? Or maybe you have a thousand ideas, 500 projects and get distracted by your own thoughts and would love some support on focus and accountability. Whatever gets you stuck, I wholeheartedly believe that gifted and twice exceptional specific coaching will help you unleash your power so that you can be your most authentic gifted self. I recently embarked on my journey on becoming a gifted and twice exceptional coach. So if you are interested in working with me one-on-one, please reach out via email at hello at giftedunleash.com, or you can find more information about my coaching offers on the website giftedunleash.com forward slash coaching. I would love working with you and I would love to get you unstuck. So please reach out and let's get started. Hello and welcome to Unleash Monday, where we talk about the brain, especially the gifted brain, and how does it affect our thinking and experience of the world differently. There are a lot of stereotypes and stigma around giftedness, and I'm here to challenge those. I'm here to raise awareness and to have a conversation around this topic of what does it mean to be a gifted adult. Common experience among gifted folks is that they feel out of place. They don't quite fit in. They are too sensitive, too intense, too emotional, too overexcitable, and too deep thinkers about the world and about themselves. If you have been called too much of about anything, then this show is for you. My name is Nadia. I'm too loud, too colorful, too bubbly, too bossy, and love to talk too much. So welcome to my world, and I'm so happy you're here. Hello, and welcome to the new week, the new year, even the new decade. Can you believe it? We made it to 2021. Yay! It has been a rocky year for all of us, and it catapulted us out of our comfort zone. But luckily, we had Netflix and other streaming services during the colder months to keep us a bit mentally occupied. And if you do have a Netflix subscription, chances are high you have come across the super successful miniseries called The Queen's Gambit. The show is based on a novel of Walter Travis from 1983. And the story follows an orphaned called Beth Harmon, and how she discovers chess and how she rises to chess stardom in the 50s and 60s. So Netflix release of the miniseries was a super success. They released it at the end of October. And apparently chess set sales went through the roof. And I must admit, I also binge watched the show and then a week later went to the shops and bought a chess set. My partner and I have been playing a little bit of chess in the morning. And it was funny when we had virtual coffee breaks at work. And I mentioned that this was what I've been doing to kind of keep me mentally sane. My boss mentioned that we do have a very good chess player at the institute where I work at. And I was like, oh, How interesting. And before I go and Google all the terms and do my own research on all the terminology that I learned in this new series, I thought, why not invite Pascal to come onto this show? And I'm just going to ask him all my burning questions that I have about chess. And that's what I did. So today's guest is Pascal Mazer. He works with me at the Swiss Tropical and Public Health Institute, and he will also introduce himself in the interview of who he is and what he does. And then we're going to talk about his hobby and passion, chess. He is such an amazing person, and I've actually known him for 10 years, but I didn't know he was such a great chess player. So I'm really happy that he came and that he agreed to answer all my questions that I have. And it just goes to show what a great workplace I'm working at and the amazing human beings I'm surrounded with and how generous they are and how humble. And when you listen to Pascal's stories, I think you will agree with me that he's one of the great examples of somebody that is a multi-potentialite with his passion of chess and being a brilliant scientist and also is apparently a very, very good guitar player. So, But without further ado, let's just dive into this amazing interview and exchange that I had with Pascal and hopefully answers all your burning questions you had about chess. Welcome, Pascal. Thank you so much for agreeing to come on to the show.
1: Thanks for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here, Nadia.
0: Thank you. And so I ask you to come today because recently Netflix has launched this new series called The Queen's Gambit and chess game sales has gone through the roof and everybody's playing chess. And I think a lot of people now have a lot of questions that they might be asking themselves or googling and I thought, well, apparently I have a great chess player as a coworker, why not invite you Onto this show and ask you all the questions that I have about chess.
1: <laughs> Thanks so much. <laughs> yes, go ahead. I have to admit, I haven't seen the Queen's Gambit yet.
0: That doesn't matter because we're just going to talk about chess mm-hmm. in general. Mm-hmm. But before we start, just so that people know, you're not only a brilliant chess player, you're also a very amazing scientist and you play. The guitar. Thanks. And would you like to, in your own words, introduce yourself? Who are you, and what do you do?
1: Well, my name is Pascal Messer. I am fifty-one, and by profession, uh, you said I'm a scientist. I'm a biologist. My main task is drug discovery. So we make new drugs. We try to make new drugs to find new molecules that can serve as drugs to treat malaria and other tropical diseases, as such as sleeping sickness or Chagas disease. So that's my main task, what I'm paid for actually to do. I'm also a professor at the University of Basel, so I'm giving quite a lot of lectures, supervising students. We also, of course, we are interested in the molecular basis of drug action to find out how a drug selectively kills the parasite, but not its host, meaning us but i guess what you want to hear is my hobby which is chess so i've been playing chess i can't even remember when i learned to play chess i think my brother taught me chess actually my brother is a better player has always been better than me he's two years older but he taught me chess when when it was boring for him to beat my dad our dad <laughs> so he needed a better opponent so i i learned chess in, in kindergarten.
0: So, you said you started playing with your brother at a very young age. When was the first time you entered a competition?
1: Mm-hmm. I don't quite remember. Primary school, probably with seven or uh, seven or eight. Yeah.
0: So, were you part of a chess club? Was that something you did as a... Group activity or how do I need? I have no clue about the chess community. Can you share a little bit?
1: I was part of a a chess club that still exists today. Chess club Birzek, it is called, where I joined as a kid. They always had chess training Saturday afternoon. And I was really fortunate because they had a very gifted chess player at the time. He was, uh, I think, an Olympic medalist for chess problem solving. So not competitional chess, but kind of the artful form of chess, just making chess problems. So he taught us kids. And then when I was maybe around 10 or so, another fortunate thing happened. We had a Romanian master who joined the club and who took over the training. His name is Charles Partos. He, unfortunately, he died two years ago. So he came to Basel. He got a job at Roche in in chemistry, but he he was, I think he used to be a professional chess player when he was younger in Romania. And he had his own chess school. And he took over the training, which was rather tough. It was kind of uh, Eastern. (laughs) But it was for for kids. It's great uh, to have such a, a master to look up. And that's when I... I think made a lot of progress there and also really got involved in kind of competitional chess, not just as a game, but as a sport.
0: Wow. And so going a little bit into the nitty gritty of chess. So you enter competitions and I see all these scores. What, how do you get scores and what do they mean? What is a good score? And when do you become a grandmaster? <laughs>
1: <laughs> so you mean rating points? Exactly. Yes, there's rating points. They're called ELO points. I think it was a Dr. ELO who invented the system. So basically you have points. When you lose a game, you lose points. When you win a game, you win points. And, and it depends on the difference, point difference to your opponent. So let's say you lose against an opponent who has way more points than you have. You don't lose that much. And if you beat an opponent with, with more points, you gain more a larger number of points. So there is ups and downs. And with this ELO list, I think you have to have at least 2,500 to become a Grandmaster. That's sort of the limit. And there's 2,400 for International Master. So that's the international rating point. But then, of course, the, the online chess platforms have their own ratings. So they also use ELO points, but uh, they have their own rating points.
0: And so you now mentioned two thousand five hundred. You mm-hmm. said so you were very short of that number. No, no, mm-hmm. I,
1: I was clearly below. No, I, I was never even close to becoming a grandmaster. So, so, so my current rating I think is two thousand two hundred fifty or so. So, so it's like a strong amateur.
0: Okay. Amateur. An amateur, but not, very. Not but professional. You're, mm-hmm but clearly you're not just a hobbyist in a sense. So you really played at at the international stage or was it more?
1: Yes. Well, uh, certainly when I was below 20, I was in in the junior team, the Swiss chess team. So we played international competitions. We played other nations teams. I also played in single events, but that's Well, I still played international tournaments afterwards, but not uh, officially as a Swiss representative. So that was I only had a chance to be in the national team below 20, above 20. Then, of course, I was not good enough. And these are really then rather kind of professional players who who compete there.
0: So when I watched this series, they were talking about opening games, middle games and end games. Yes. So so could you tell us a little bit and how do you know in which stage you are or is that just afterwards you evaluate or is there a certain number like when your opponent takes the first piece then you're moved to the next stage or how do we need to think about
1: well in the beginning the two armies if you want or the two sets of pieces are completely separate so the opening phase is the development to bring out your pieces So usually there is a fight for the center. Center is more important than the edge of the board. So you make a few pawn moves to open the diagonals for the bishops. Usually also you castle to bring your king into safety. So I would say the opening is the phase until all the pieces are developed. And then you have the middle game, which is often or usually the longest phase of the game. And basically the end game is defined as the phase when there is no more immediate danger of the king to be checkmated. And that's the phase when the king starts to actively participate in the game and to move also towards the center or to participate. In the middle game, it would be suicide for the king to actively participate. So the king is, is stored away, usually near the corner somewhere.
0: Okay, very interesting. And you talk about length. So in this series, they also talk about, you know, the regular chess game. How long do you have in a regular chess game to play?
1: Well, the number of moves is not limited. So there is games of chess that end after 20 moves. <laughs> it really is a sudden attack and the player is lost. A game of chess may also take 100 moves. And there's a long end game. So that's there is no limit to that. But depending on the format, there is a time limit. So so in tournament game would be you get two hours for 40 moves. That's a normal time s- schedule. So that would might take like four hours for only 40 moves. And then you get an additional hour for another 20 moves. Then maybe half an hour for the rest. So a normal tournament game can take really long. Now with internet, of course, that's not really attractive. <laughs> also for spectators, maybe even not so for the players. So usually internet games are faster. So you can have a blitz game. The shortest is one minute for the whole game. So you have kind of a time span from really extremely short battle where the whole game takes two minutes at the max to a game that can last seven or eight hours.
0: Yeah, that was actually my next question. These speed chess. So they, they played speed chess. And that's also then how long do you have between a move is, is then predefined as well.
1: N- not oh. n- necessarily. Classical speed chess is, let's say, five minutes for the whole game. Okay. So the whole game lasts certainly not longer than 10 minutes. You only have the five. If you use up your time, you're lost, even if you have a winning position. But it's up to you. you, you if, if I want, I can spend three minutes on the move, but then I only have two minutes for the rest of the game. Uh, and there's another form of chess uh, called the f- Fisher form that is only possible now since there is electronic clocks that give an increment. So you have a starting kind of capital of time, let's say one or two minutes or more, and you get an increment with each move you make. Could be like three seconds or five six seconds. So that way, basically, you have never less than three seconds for moves.
0: Wow. Okay. So you also have to not only think about your moves, but also have to kind of economically manage your time.
1: Always. Exactly. It's also, if you invest a lot of time, it's taking a risk, you know, then now you have, I have to win because <laughs> I have to find the mate not only to, to win in time. Otherwise I'm lost, even if I have a good position.
0: So I have a question. Do you think or this is the prejudice, right, from the outside, that all chess players are smart. And I guess that there needs to be some sort of talent that you need to bring to the table if you want to play at the high level of chess. Is there anything that you think is very important? Like, do you need to have good memory? Do you need to have a high level of creativity? like tactical skills, visionary, abstract thinking, mathematical thinking, or just a combination of all? Are there different players that have different, obviously, strengths? Can you say a little bit about that? <laughs> Yes,
1: I imagine that might be one of your most tricky questions. I think there's a lot of research on, on that too, and I can't answer it. So certainly I don't think that chess players are more intelligent than non-chess players. On the other hand, you're right. There must be something that makes a good chess player. So maybe yeah, mathematical, visual thinking. Yeah, I would say visualization is important. Memory certainly too. I think there's quite a lot of research also what makes a master from an amateur. What's the difference then? That's usually connected with that the master basically sees the whole board and remembers the whole board, even the seemingly unimportant pieces, whereas an amateur maybe just looks at the center of action, concentrates there. If both are shown, let's say, 10 positions, and then they're asked later to reconstruct the positions. So certainly memory is involved. To be a strong player, I think it also needs some good, you might call it, crisis management or kind of coolness. Once you panic, you're basically lost, particularly if there is a lot of time pressure. Yes, but I <laughs> I can't really uh, answer the question whether there's a general attribute that all chess masters have.
0: So when you're in front of a chess board and you're thinking about your next move, how do I need to imagine what, what's going on in your brain? Can you form it into words? Like, Do you go through every single step that could be you know, every single position that comes from the next move that you're making. How many steps are you thinking ahead? Can you give us a little bit of insight of what's going on? Or
1: it's difficult. I don't know who said that. There was, I think, a famous grandmaster. master. He was asked the same question and he said, well, just one step further than the opponent. <laughs> so basically what you need is a plan. Not just the move, but you need to know what's my plan over the next move. What's the ideal position for each of my pieces? Usually a plan starts with the question well which of my pieces are suboptimal which are not at a good place so I need to improve these there's always a danger to kind of start with the good placed well-placed pieces and use them of course the plan needs to take into account what the plan of the opponent might be so that's a big difference between a strong and a mediocre player that the strong player basically focuses on on the threats of the opponent (laughs) first and takes care of those and maybe a mediocre player rather concentrates on my own threats that I can build. And then it really depends on the position, whether it's sort of tactical, highly complicated, whether they are forced moves I take, he takes back to check that require a very exact calculation or whether it's a kind of a positional game that requires to have a long-term plan and then see how you, you can use that so it's also a question of investing time at which position is it worthwhile, highly tactical, that I'm, has to do with a feeling that maybe that I have the feeling that I'm, there must be maybe a sacrifice possible. There must be a mate in this position. It's worthwhile to invest or whether you think this is kind of, I'm not saying boring, but tactically less uh, demanding position. It requires fast play and solid moves.
0: Do you also memorize, I I think there's some like openings that have names. So are these like memorized mm -hmm. moves? Mm -hmm. And then when you play and you've played a lot, like you remember past encounters where you were in a similar position. Yes, certainly.
1: That's absolutely essential to do your homework, work on the openings. There's of course a large body of chess literature. There are books on, on openings there is all the game databases collections. So you can check for the openings how the grandmasters play it. And of course now as the chess machines are getting stronger and stronger, we can use them at home too to analyze games. So certain homework to be done, and then with every game you lose, ideally you learn something and find out what were the decisive mistakes or what went wrong in the opening. It hurts to lose twice <laughs> the same way, yeah.
0: And do you know the Queen's Gambit? Yes. Can you tell us about it? What is (laughs) it?
1: (laughs) Well, it's a, a standard classical opening. So usually the beginner's opening is King's Pawn, move to a head, E4, opponent plays E5. So that's the King's opening. The King's Gambit would then be F2, F4 in the second move. And the Queen's Gambit, the Queen's opening, is just the opposite on the with the queen's pawn so white plays d4 as the first move so that's the move the queen's pawn two ahead black answers symmetrically plays d5 with black's d pawn, and then white plays c4 mm-hmm. so that's the queen's bishop pawn advances by two but it's not protected so that's why it's a gambit if black accepts he plays queen's pawn d5 takes c4 but that, of course, weakens the center. Basically, it weakens the, the case E4. So at some point, White can play, for instance, E4 himself. So it's a very old opening, considered very solid for White.
0: And I guess a chess player will also have a little bit of a strategy of going into a new game. You You never play the same moves or rarely play. Trying also to Uh, surprise your opponent, right? By kind of using different openings at the next games. So maybe it
1: depends how well you know your opponent or your your opponent knows you. If you always play the same people, that's true. You prepare something or if you have a match and you know who you're going to play, you have, you can access the databases and you see all the games of your opponent. You know, your opponent sees all your games. So that certainly requires some kind of preparation but then you also you cannot prepare something new for every game. So you need to feel at home with your openings to be confident that you know better than your opponent, even if she or he prepares something new. And there is two kind of approaches. So some say, well, I just play against the pieces of my opponent, meaning I play the position and I try to find the best move in that position no matter who is sitting there behind the pieces. So that would be, I think, a typical case would be Fabiano Caruana, maybe world number two currently. And the other more psychologically involved player would say, no, I don't play the pieces, I play my opponent. And I don't want to make the ultimately the best move in the position, but I want to make the move that poses the most problems to my opponent. So that then depends on the knowledge of the style of the opponent. So that would typically be Magnus Carlsen, the current world champion, who rather plays the opponent than the pieces.
0: So also some psychological tactic can be a strong talent. which only
1: works if you really know your your opponent. Of course, these guys, they do. They always play the same at the top 10 or top 20. They play each other so often that they know each other well. Yes, maybe like tennis. Uh, if you compare how often Fedor and Nadal played against each other, so I'm sure also uh, a tennis champ has a different style uh, depending on the opponent.
0: And I heard some players sacrifice their queens to in <laughs> order to get, you know, ahead in the game. Does that show that this player is an aggressive player, or what makes a player more aggressive, less aggressive?
1: Again, I would argue it's the position that might demand more aggressive or might allow more aggressive games. But of course, there's a character style, yeah, how much risk people take, how aggressive they are. So there is differences. Typical case also Magnus Carlsen when he was uh, young to make it to the top. He was extremely aggressive. He was called the Mozart of chess for his beautiful fireworks in chess tactics and sacrifices. But then to become world champion, he changed his style and he he rather became the cool positional player because the sort of players he encountered in the top 10 would not allow themselves to be beaten with these tactical fireworks. So, again, that's an example. So, of course, the queen is the most valuable piece in chess. Which is actually nice, and to have a, the, the queen is more valuable than the than the king. So that's also the highest sacrifice you can make is to sacrifice the the queen. So that's considered of um, particular beauty.
0: Well, I so. guess if you sacrifice the king, it's over.
1: Yes, you can sacrifice the king.
0: So, watching this. Netflix series, The Queen's Gambit. And there was also another movie called The Coldest Game. Have you seen that movie? No. So that was about the Soviet Union and the Cold War Mm -hmm. and the Cuba crisis. And it was about this chess game between the Americans and the Soviet Union. However, both of these main characters, the the chess player Mm -hmm. stars, they both had drugs and drinking Mm -hmm. problems they kind of implied or in one it was even said to kind of slow down their mind because they were both so brilliant that their mind is just so all over the place that in order to function in the real world they kind of have to slow down their minds I was just wondering do you not by calling names but is that something that's really happening in chess or not to your knowledge
1: oh well, it may be maybe more in chess than in other sports i'm sure if you have a drinking problem you can't become a good table tennis champion or <laughs> whatever so usually i would say chess being a sport is also certainly not good to have a drug problem if you want to be a chess champ i'm not sure but certainly modern players like Kasparov or Magnus, they are sportsmen. So this is kind of mensana in corpore sanum. So it's not helpful to have a drug problem. But there might be extraordinary gifted people who are maybe more tempted to drugs. I haven't seen those movies. I have seen one movie. It's actually a book by Nabokov, Lushin's Defense. And there was a movie made of that and I can highly recommend it. It's very sad, but it's a really beautiful movie.
0: Okay, I will look into that.
1: And it also has very accurate chess scenes. It's very beautiful. If you know the game of chess, the ending is really, it ends with a beautiful mate.
0: Thank you. I have time now over the Christmas break to watch some of the movies. Um, Yes,
1: less well known than Lolita, but I think it's a really good book and a fantastic movie.
0: So I think The Queen's Gambit the series on Netflix, it was such a huge success. And I also think is probably due to the protagonist, it's a young woman and just shows this kind of, yeah, you young woman in chess and it seems she was always like the only woman at the t- tournament. Uh, and I think chess is still a very male-dominated sport. Do you have any ideas? How can we make it a little bit more attractive for young girls? Or is there anything you would like to add to the topic of gender in chess?
1: Yes, again, it's a delicate question. So I'm convinced there is nothing, there is no gender aspect in talents that, that uh, men should, for some reason, be better at chess. It's It's just a question of the pyramid. The more boys start playing chess uh, the higher is the, the pyramid so it's just less popular among girls and again i think that has nothing to do with the gender or biology if you take countries for instance like georgia I mean, Europe, not the U.S. Chess is highly popular among women, or or used to be at least. So for a long time during the Soviet Union, the world chess champion in women's chess was from Georgia. So really, it's a question of attracting girls to the chess club or to the chess game. I'm I'm struggling a bit with chess. There is, of course, there's this kind of separation. We have uh, also in Switzerland, there's the Schachverband. And then there is the Women's Chess Forbund, F- F- which I understand was a wish by the female chess players also internationally to have their own competitions. I don't think it does them a favor <laughs> because it somehow stipulates that women are less good at chess. Of course, it makes sense to have a, a women's soccer league or a women's boxing or a judo league because of a physical difference which is absolutely absent in, in chess so I don't see any point why we should need two different chess federations in Switzerland and you also see that I think the best women often like Judith Polgar refused to compete in the women's federation but she competed with the men and she bet them so I'm not sure on the one hand it attracts Maybe young women or girls to chess, if they have their own tournaments, they can quickly progress there. But overall, I don't really think it's a favor. Actually, I think it's anti-feminist to have a women's chess federation. But that's a delicate issue.
0: Yeah, sure. But mm-hmm. I think, yeah, closing that gap at some point, yeah, would be great. Mm-hmm. And just also getting the girls early on, motivating them to to go and play chess and not just with barbies (laughs) Mm
1: -hmm. they're certainly they're not worse than boys Mm -hmm.
0: exactly i think it's just the the Mm -hmm. gender stereotype and then yeah if maybe the boy gets a chess set for christmas and the girl gets a different yeah maybe a barbie set instead of a chess set
1: Mm -hmm. so (laughs) So it's great that with the Queen's Gambit, the hero is a
0: woman chess player. Exactly. So I think that's really fighting the stereotype. So do you have a favorite chess player and why?
1: Yeah, well, maybe a bit old fashioned. I think my favorite is still uh, Garry Kasparov. Uh, Of course, he was the star when I was a teenager or learning. There were just the games he was taking over the throne from, from Karpov and... For his creativity, his pawn sacrifices, so maybe not the queen sacrifice, but a uh, more subtle, but really how he played a bit more aggressive. The style then was previously, there were people like Karpov or Petrosian, very calm, cool players, and Kasparov actually also tried to win with black, uh, not only to equalize, same as Bobby Fischer, of course, so that would be my other one. Uh, if I have to pick two, it would be Bobby Fischer and Carrie Kasparov.
0: And does your ability to play chess, do you think it influences how you approach everyday life? Is that something like these thinking patterns and thinking moves ahead? Is that something that goes into your scientific experiments or, I don't know, career moves? Mm,
1: Difficult to say. Maybe not everyday life, but rather crisis management. I think there it helps. Yes, not to panic, because that's how you survive in chess. You have a crisis in every other game, basically. So to, yes, also kind of tackle small and big problems with the same curiosity, I think that can help.
0: And at the peak of your game, how many hours of chess did you play?
1: A day or a week.
0: Oh, yeah. No. Did you play daily? Well,
1: Yes, but I never really played like training for several hours a day that it would take to become a professional. So I would play uh, maybe uh, an hour per day or so.
0: And you played with your brother or by yourself or?
1: Yes, both in the club. And then I played in school actually a lot. I have a friend who was also a good chess player. So we always were sitting kind of in the back row and (laughs) playing chess.
0: So obviously i watched the series i got inspired i bought a chess set
1: ah wow fantastic
0: (laughs) so the past couple of weeks my partner and i we have played some chess in the morning over coffee Mm -hmm. usually it took us maybe like half an hour out of the times we played i won like once
1: Yes. So it looks you need some training. Exactly. I promise you, I give you a couple of lectures and then you will beat him.
0: Oh, thank you. So my next question was more going to be like if I'm now at home and if I don't have you giving me lessons, what do you advise people wanting to improve? So I know how, you know, the pieces move Mm -hmm. on the board, but how do I then get better? Do I read the books? Do I YouTube it? Or how do I learn?
1: So I learned with trainers in the club, joining a chess club and go to training. At the moment, I think that's not an option. There are a lot of good chess books, I usually, I would recommend kids' books for chess. But what's really, I think, new now is the many tutorials and videos you can watch. So, for instance, I play a lot on Lee Chess, L-I-Chess. There's also Chess24.com. So Chess24 has a lot of videos. They charge a membership fee, and then you can watch all those videos or tutorials
0: well, thank you. So we will list all these links. Maybe we can put them in the show notes So if people want to go and play some chess online.
1: Yes. I think a first step would be to analyze your own game. So trying to remember the game might be one option. After you play the game, why don't you try and see, can you actually replay it, the game, how it was? Maybe together with your boyfriend, do you still remember all the moves? Or easier then, you take notations, you write down the moves. That's what you have to do for a tournament game anyhow. So I recommend to you to...
0: So what do you write down? What do you actually write down on this notepad?
1: (laughs) The coordinates. So the board has coordinates from A to H and from 1 to 8 vertically. So if you're playing white, black chess field at the lower left is A1. If you're playing black, uh, it's H8. And then you write down the moves. So for instance, E4, you don't write pawn, you just write E4. Or if you play the Queen's Gambit, you play D4, you write D4, black writes D5, you write C4. Maybe you play E6 and then you play Knight C3, whatever you write down which piece and the field it moves to. That allows you to reconstruct the game in the end. Once you have done it, then you can also show the game. You can send it to me or take a picture of what you've written down. Send it to me, and then I can give you some hints where you could have maybe improved it.
0: I, I my chess game has just improved by listening to you, <laughs> <laughs> and I think there there are a lot of uh, mathematical thinking to it. And yeah, I I guess there's more to it than just moving the pieces, obviously. And there's some um,
1: common sense that will rapidly improve your game if you're a beginner which is uh, concentrate on the center of the board if you just look at the pieces, many of the pieces actually have more power in the center that's in particular true for the knight a knight standing in the center of the board has usually eight options it can move to a knight standing in a corner only has two options so you immediately see how, how the piece gets stronger in the center so concentrate on the center which is basically the four squares e4, e5, d4, d5 don't move pieces twice before all other pieces are out that's also a typical mistake that is easily avoided so complete your development complete it by castling either short or long side that often connects the rooks that they, they connect to each other brings the king into safety so these general rules help you to get started into the game. And a typical mistake is to move around with one knight rather than developing all the pieces.
0: Yeah, I think I totally made those mistakes. (laughs) I didn't write down how I moved, but yeah, I think I moved with like one piece all over the board.
1: (laughs) Yes. So that's the good thing. If you're a beginner, it's easy to improve your game. It takes very little and you have a kind of a sensible game. You know what you want to do, then you can follow a plan
0: so but i'm really going to take you up on your offer and we'll contact you for some private lesson later on (laughs) i'm glad to is there anything else that you wish people would know about chess or is there anything you would like to share or something you wish you knew earlier
1: No, actually, I'm perfectly happy now that chess is gaining in popularity. I think it's not only because of the Queen's Gambit, but it's also because chess is really particularly suitable for online gaming. It's also because, as we said in the beginning, chess is so versatile. It can be from extremely fast to very slow the one thing, uh, frequent misconception I encounter if I talk to people, if they said, oh, what, you play chess, you play four hours at one game, uh, I wouldn't have the patience to do that. That always strikes me as uh, very much misinformed because it doesn't take patience for the chess player. <laughs> it's not a question about patience because you're under time pressure. You need that time and you're under stress. So that's something, the statement, it needs patience to be a chess player. That's something I... I just can't understand that. So that's, I think, a common misconception. That's, I think, of of the many things you need to be a good chess player. I don't think patience is is one of these attributes.
0: It's more the opposite, actually, once you get into the game, as you said.
1: Yes, yes. It's really stressful, even physically, to feel the heartbeat. Yeah.
0: So thank you so much, Pascal, for taking the time and coming here and sharing all of your knowledge. So if people want to connect, can they find you somewhere?
1: Yes, maybe easiest on LinkedIn.
0: Okay, perfect. So we will put all the connections and the links in the show notes. And if people have questions, they can find you on LinkedIn. Thank you so much for coming.
1: You're most welcome. And we meet again for the first chess lecture next week, I guess.
0: Thank you so much. Bye, Nadia. Bye. I hope you enjoyed this episode and it answered all your questions you had about chess. And now I'm curious, do you play chess? Or did this episode inspire you to pick up a chessboard and start playing? I would love to hear from you. Why don't you connect with me on Instagram at Unleash.Monday? Or you can also find me on Twitter at Unleash Monday. So let me know. I would really love to hear if you're inspired, or if you're already a good chess player, or if that's something you did as a child and then kind of forgot about it. So I'm really, really curious if this episode has inspired you, or if you probably, like me, already were inspired by the Netflix show itself. And if you are enjoying this podcast and would like to support me, I would really appreciate it if you subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcast or wherever you listen to. And on Apple Podcast, there's also a possibility to leave a star rating. So you can give me five stars. That will be amazing. And you can also leave a written review. And the more reviews it gets and the more download it gets, the more people will be able to get to know this show, and we'll promote this show in that sense. So that will really mean a lot to me if we can spread the word. And if you know somebody who you think could profit from listening to this show, just share this episode with that person. And so, yeah, that's from me. I'm wishing you a wonderful start into the week, into this new year. And I see you in two weeks. Bye.